You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, good evening. Right on. (laughs) Go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 73. Uh, We're going to be continuing our study of the Psalms. And I, I know I've said it like every week, I seriously love this. I love walking through the Psalms with you guys. This has been so good for me personally, and I hope it's been a blessing to you guys. Um, but as you're turning there, Psalm 73, it's the Psalm right after Psalm 72. Um, uh, a question to begin. Right, a question to begin. How is the Christian to think about the prosperity of the unrighteous? How are, we to, or how are we supposed to respond whenever we see the unbeliever prosper and the believer have little? The Bible teaches many times that God blesses His people and is good to them. Right? So in light of that, how then do we deal with this tension that exists between God being good to His people and the wicked having wealth and health and power and ease on earth? How do we deal with that tension? How are we supposed to deal with that? How are we supposed to cope with that? Right? What should we be reminding ourselves of when we see this? Because right? it happens all the time. God says He's good to His people, and yet you see His people go without. Maybe not so much here in America, because we've been an exception to the rule for the last three centuries, but whenever you look historically and you look out on the world today at our brothers and sisters in other countries, why do the wicked do so well? And the righteous suffer so much. What should we remind ourselves when we see that? And this psalm answers that question. right? How am I supposed to deal with what I see in the world? And it does not do it, uh, it does not answer this question by giving us a big philosophical answer, though I believe that the scriptures are very much capable of that. But it answers this question by reminding us of what truly matters. right? What truly matters and the real blessings that the believer has in knowing God. That's just something to think about. One of God's goals is to change our thinking, right? If If you're a Christian, one of God's goals for you is to change your thinking so that you think properly as God does, right? Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? That's God's goal for us, that we would think properly like He does and that we would focus on what actually matters instead of getting wrapped up in things that don't have any eternal significance, all right, that's one of God's big goals for us. So if you're a note taker, here's my big takeaway point for the evening. It's very simple, and we're going to hit a lot of other things aside from this. But this is the big one that I pray will stick with you. Here it is. To know God is enough. And I know that sounds like a religious platitude, Right, like a thing you would see on the back of like a really lame Christian's car that listens to Caleb all the time. God is enough, like just like a little sticker. But for real, I'm not just I'm not being trite whenever I say. And by the way, if you listen to Caleb, I'm just giving you a hard time. Right? I like to razz people. Um, but God, to know God really is enough, and that's the big takeaway. I hope you guys will, will get from this sermon. So without any more for introduction, we have 28 verses to cover, so we got a lot of work to do. I'm gonna try to blast through this as quickly as I can without neglecting the truth of the word. But Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, 
to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that you've given us your wisdom in these 66 books that we could know what's true about ourselves, about life, about the coming judgment, about the eternal blessedness that believers have to look forward to, about your great grace to us right now and the fate of the unbeliever, which is destruction under your wrath. Lord, I pray that you would set those things on our hearts this evening and remind us that there's nothing to envy in the ungodly. but that it's the righteous, those who know Christ, that are truly blessed. Please press that on us and encourage us with your word. Holy Spirit, make our hearts receptive this evening. Please do a work of sovereign grace. And if there's anyone here who does not know the Lord Jesus, I pray that you would begin to draw them to him. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're just going to walk through this uh, like we always do, just kind of systematically. Let's start with verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Right? Now, you might read that, and you might initially think, I'm not an Israelite. What does this have to do with me? Right? God's good to Israel, but I'm not a member of Israel, or at least most of us here are not members of Israel, to my knowledge. Right? Now, here's, there's a long answer and a short answer, but I don't have 15 minutes to do the long answer. Uh, short answer, what does this have to do with you? 
Israel in this context means the people of God. Right? Those who love and trust and follow and know God and believe in His Messiah. Right? Whether you're under the Old Covenant and you're looking forward to the Messiah, Jesus, who was to come and do what God had promised, or whether you're us under the New Covenant and you're looking back to what the Messiah came and did. Right? It's the people of God under either Old or New Covenant, Israel. Right? And we, so you guys don't think that I'm just pulling this out of nowhere. We know this, that Paul, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 16, calls the church the Israel of God. He says, peace be upon the Israel of God, meaning the believer, the Christian, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So, spiritually speaking, the church is Israel. Spiritually speaking, the church is Israel. We are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. All right, so I just wanted to get that clear in your head. I'm not getting into politics. I'm not talking about Trump and the embassy and all that. If I wanted to make some of you mad, I might. We're not going to do that because I don't care enough. Uh, I care about the Bible. But spiritually speaking, the church is Israel. So this psalm, I said that to say this because I just want to clear something up. This psalm is for us. The whole Bible is for us, as a matter of fact. For all of those who know God through faith in Jesus Christ, the whole Bible, all 66 books, Old and New Testament, it's all for you. And we ought to thank God for this blessing. If you're in Christ, this whole book belongs to you. Right? So I said that just to say this. Just take a little dig here. Don't believe that nonsense from Andy Stanley. Right? We need to unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. Just take the first two-thirds of the book out. It doesn't really matter. Right? Just trying to... Just letting you know, don't listen to that nonsense. We need the whole book. The New Testament only makes sense in, in light of the old. That's one. And two, we are spiritual Israel. So God's blessings that he declares over his people in the old covenant are also ours in Christ, just in a better, more full way. So this whole book belongs to us. But anyway, God is good to his people. So the psalmist starts with this solid declaration. And he starts here, to, and he grounds us in this truth that God is certainly good to his people. Because it's going to get rough here in a minute. All right, so truly, God is good to his people. Something I hope that we can get, get into our hearts is that this is true. This is an unchanging fact. No matter where you're at in life, or how you feel, or what's going on, or what pain you might be suffering, this truth is constant because God's love for His people is steadfast, eternal, and unwavering. It's a rock that we can stand upon. He is good to His people. But let's just think on some ways. Let's just take a minute and just refresh ourselves. I know we're early on in the sermon, we're early on in the worship service. Let's refresh ourselves. How has God been good to His people? Well, first and foremost, God has sent His Son to save us. And again, I, I pray that we never take that truth for granted. God has done what we could not do. Our own sinful nature could not keep His law. We were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy in the fullness of time, sent His Son to take on flesh, keep the law in our place that we could not, and then suffer the wrath of God for us. And then by faith, clothe us with His perfect obedience so that we could be accepted by God. First and foremost, God has sent His Son to save us. Surely God is good to Israel. He sent His Son for us. Second, God has caused us to be born again. We talked about this in the men's small group. God has caused us to be born again, which is a sovereign work of God, as you guys know. We were dead in our sins. We could not exercise faith. We were hostile to God, and now we live because God has caused us to be made alive in Christ by the work of His Spirit. God, you did not choose God by yourself. God chose you to be in His Son. What a blessing. Third, God is working holiness in you. 
As you kill sin, as you grow in obedience to God, that's not by your strength. That's God's goodness towards you to let you conquer your sin. Right? All of this, truly God is good to Israel. For heaven is going to be your home. And I know that I don't think about the life to come enough. Right? Talk to some older believers. Talk to them about heaven and the blessed hope that we have in the life to come. Heaven will be your home. Truly, God is good to Israel. Five, God has given his word to guide us. Right? Scripture alone guides us. It's our authority. It's infallible. It shows us the way that we ought to go and guides us in this life, as we're going to see here later on in the psalm. He's given his word to guide us. John Calvin said that we're like blind men in a dark room groping around for truth apart from the word of God. But God has been so gracious to give us the scriptures. And then lastly, and we, the list could go on and on, but God has given us his church. Right, we often don't view the church as a blessing from God because the people of God can be very annoying. Um, right, it's okay to say it. It's cool. Uh, but nevertheless, they're the people of God, and they're a blessing to the other people of God. Right? God works through his church, the church being the visible representation of Christ on earth. And he gives us the church to help us and support us. Truly, God is good to his people. All of these things. I just wanted to refresh your mind of all the ways, just very broad, general ways that God's been good to his people. And I'm sure in your own life, you can think of all the times that God has just kicked the door in and rescued you from situations that he's been faithful to you whenever you saw, all you saw was bleakness and darkness. And God's been gracious to you personally. But I just wanted to hit some general ways that he's been good to all of his people. Right? But we must hold this truth that God is good to us. Right? And let this be the truth that grounds how we perceive things, that God is good to us. Let this be the ground that affects how we live, how we talk, how we see the world, how we see the things that go on in the world, that God is good to us. That should be our theme. And that's where the psalmist starts. Then he continues. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Right? So even though God is good, right? he says, but as for me. Right? So even though God is good, in spite of that, the psalmist had almost slipped. Right? And I would take that slipping, he doesn't spe specify, but he almost slipped into unbelief about what he had just said in verse 1, that God is actually good to his people. We're going to see that that's actually what happened. But he almost slipped into unbelief. Uh, he almost slipped into bitterness. In sin, sinful thoughts toward God, maybe he almost slipped into apostasy, right? Forsaking the faith, just abandoning uh, the true religion. He almost slipped, but he didn't fall, right? He almost did, but someone kept him from slipping, and we'll see that in a minute because God is good to Israel. <laughs> he keeps his people from falling away, thank God. But he had almost fallen. Why? Verse 3 tells us. He had almost fallen because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw the prosperity of the ungodly, the unbeliever, and he became envious of what they had in this life. Right? And we see the wicked prosper really, really often, don't we? If you have a television or you have the internet, which I assume is most of us or all of us, you can see that the wicked prosper. Who are the majority of wealthy people in the world? They do not know Christ. They might claim to, but their actions prove that they don't. The wealthy tend to be wicked. Look at your politicians. Most powerful people in the world. Your kings and your princes and your governors, your chancellors, your prime ministers, the president of the United States. Wicked. Ungodly. Look at your celebrities, the most famous people in the land who have the most cultural influence. Wicked. 
Look at the majority of teachers on television stations like TBN who have the largest followings in the world. Godless, heretics, false teachers. Even locally, we won't name names, but we could. We see the wicked, even in Portsmouth, having power and having wealth, right? It's easy to see. And most often, the ones who prosper the most are wicked. They don't know God. And it's really easy to fall into envy over what they have or to accuse God of being unfair. It's really easy to fall into that sin. And again, we can begin to ask God, why do they do so well? They don't seem to have problems. Why do God's people not seem to do this well? It's not fair. And that's the stage being set for us. How are we supposed to process this? But Asaph then goes on to describe how the wicked thrive in verses 4 through 12. It says they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble like other people. They're not stricken like the rest of us. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. They threaten to oppress the people of God. They set their mouths against the heavens. Right? They blaspheme. They're arrogant on the earth. They, they, they throw the people of God for a loop that they might run to them. They arrogantly say, how can God know? God doesn't care. God's not going to do anything to stop me. And they keep increasing in their riches. Right? Verses 4 through 12 are like a sorrowful exclamation from the psalmist that he's saying, oh, look at how well off that the wicked are. Look at how well off that the unbeliever is. They don't have a hard life. They don't have any pain until the day that they die. They have much more than they need and they don't seem to suffer like the rest of us. They don't have troubles and trials like the people of God do. And as I said earlier, this is generally true. Historically, this is true. As a rule, this is true. That the people of God tend to lack while the ungodly have a lot. And this has been a really weird exception in America for the last three centuries. And it's because America was founded by the Puritans. (laughs) I'm just keeping it real with you. They were sinners too. I'm not saying that they were sinless or anything like that. But the Puritans had a very biblical worldview. And they kind of set the, set the stuff for the godly to do pretty well in the new world. And for the wicked to be punished. We've been the exception for a long time. And I'm not being a fear monger. It's coming to an end right now. Like we're seeing it. Christendom is dying in the West. Persecution's coming. The righteous are beginning to be persecuted. And it's always been this way all over the world, but we're just now starting to get a little foretaste of what our brothers and sisters have been dealing with for two millennia. But the wicked have wealth. They have health. They have power. They have worldly pleasure at their fingertips, while the righteous tend to lack, at least by comparison. And what was interesting in reading verses 4 through 12 is we see the result of the prosperity of the wicked. They increase in sin. Verse 6 says they become proud. They begin to think that they're self-made and they have what they have purely by their own strength. Right? The the godless in power, we also see in verse uh, 8b, the second half, that the godless in power tend to oppress the godly. And we can see this happen with governments. It's happening here some now, as I just said. We see that as they have this wealth and all this stuff, verse 9a, that they become blasphemous. They set their tongues against the heavens. They become blasphemous. They think of themselves as little gods, little sovereigns over their little empires that they've made and that they run things. And they blaspheme the God who's given it to them. In verse 11, we see what I think is the highlight of all of it. They become practical atheists or just regular old atheists. They arrogantly think that God will do nothing to them. 
Does God know? Does the, does the Most High One see? Is He going to do anything? Or they think that He or that, that, that he's, isn't there to see their actions and judge them. Right, so I want to draw that out, and I want to make this note. Prosperity, this is what we see in the Bible. Prosperity tends to ruin people or make them worse. Right? Prosperity tends to do that to almost everyone in the Bible. And I'm not saying that there aren't, like the godly rich are also mentioned in the Bible. Joseph of Arimathea. Right? We see the godly rich in the Bible, King David, King Solomon, that they were sinners too. But overall, the godly can be wealthy. But we see that prosperity tends to ruin people or to make them worse. So I wanted to, in light of that, say this. For those of us whom God has blessed with much, and that is quite a few of us in here, especially when you compare yourself to the rest of the world. For those of us whom God has blessed with much, we must be on guard against becoming like the people that were described in verses 4 through 12. That you wouldn't become a blasphemer and think that you're your own little God over your own empire. Or to think that you got this solely because you picked yourself up by your own bootstraps and went out and did it. No, whatever you have comes from the hand of God and you ought to daily get on your knees and thank Him for not only saving your soul, but like whipped cream on top. He's given you all this other stuff that He absolutely did not have to. You should be grateful. I just want to draw that out here lest we become like them. Be on guard against being like that. But the psalmist looks at all of this and says they're at ease the wicked, and they suffer little, and they continue to grow in their wealth, all while the believer does not. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me bring this home. Right, not ending the sermon. <laughs> I'm too Baptist for that. We're not done yet. Right, but let's bring this, I'm trying to bring this home, press this to you individually where you're at. Maybe this is you right now. You can sympathize with Asaph and how he looked out and saw the wicked doing so well. Or maybe it's someone that you know and you empathize with them. And you see all this stuff going on in the world where the righteous lack and the wicked seem to do so well and it drives you crazy and it actually angers you. You see the unbeliever prosper and I don't just mean with money or power anymore. We can apply this to our own lives. Let me give you some real examples. You're a woman and you want children. And by the way, I hit this a lot because just to be transparent with you guys, this is something that me and my wife are going through right now. You want children. And God's saying no, or at least not right now. And then you see the unbeliever has four. Or you see a godless woman with six kids from six different men, and you think, what are you doing, God? Why not me? Or you're unemployed. And you see a person that does not know God having a really good job and just making bank and spending it on just nothing ungodliness or you want a spouse badly you want a husband you want a wife and you look around you see unbelievers getting married around you all the time and knowing that they're going to get divorced or you're sick and you see the wicked in peak health or this one you're depressed and you look out at people that don't know God and they seem to be having the time of their life and don't have any real problems. And you wonder, why not me? Why is God blessing people who don't know Him? Why is God blessing people who hate and oppose Him and hate His Son? Why would He bless them? 
Why do the people of God lack so much? Let me just take a note here. It seems like right now is forever. It seems like that how it is now is how it will always be, and that is not true. (laughs) That's not true. And we're going to see that here in a minute. But Asaph gives voice to this frustration in verse 13 and 14. He says, all in vain. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All in vain. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Let me paraphrase that for you and give you the sense of what he's saying. He's saying, for no reason I have obeyed and trusted and tried to honor God. For no reason. He blesses the wicked but seems to ignore his people. And every morning I wake up and I have to deal with my own suffering and then go and see the righteous suffer while the wicked thrive. Why? Why? What is the point of walking in obedience? I try to honor you, God, and yet you do not bless me like you bless them. And I love the fact that the Psalms get that real with us. Is how you feel sometimes. Right? There's a theologian named W. Robert Godfrey, and I don't know if names get any more pretentious than that. Uh, W. Robert Godfrey, give me a break. He's a really good theologian, though. But anyway, uh, he said this about the Psalms. He said he, said, uh, he appreciates the Psalms because the Psalms say things that we're too pious to say. Like, I'm too holy to say that. But then God gives us this book. He said, no, uh, punk, I inspired these words. Uh, Say them. You think them anyway. That doesn't mean we should say whatever we think to God. But he says, no, let me teach you how to deal with this, and I'll give you the words to say whenever you don't know what's appropriate to say to me. I appreciate that out of God. This psalm gets real. Christianity's messy. The people of God are messy. And yet God gives us this book. Let me just lay this before you too. It is God's goodness and patience that makes it safe for us to voice our doubts. It is His goodness and patience toward His people that allows us to voice our questions to Him and our frustrations to Him. Because He's merciful and long-suffering with His people. He's gracious to us. We can voice how we feel to Him. Let me put a caveat on that though. Voice how you feel so long as you don't begin to accuse God or be angry with God. That's where Job screwed up. We never have the right to accuse God of injustice. We never have the right to accuse God of not being good to His people. We never have the right to be angry with Him and His most holy, sovereign will. That's blasphemy. But we can voice our frustrations to Him because He's a patient Father to His children when they suffer. I appreciate that from Him. But Asaph is upset and he's frustrated. And he wonders if living a faithful life to God is even worth it anymore. Verse 15, he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What he's saying is, if I had told other believers what I was thinking, I would have done damage to them. If I would have said all those things that I was thinking. So Asaph feels like God does not bless his people. He feels that obedience does not matter. He feels like God is unjust. But he never goes and says this junk to other people. Never. This is a good idea. He knew that this kind of thinking was not right. Remember verse 1. Truly, God is good to his people. Truly, God is good to Israel. He knows this kind of thinking that he's having is not right. He knows that it's not going to help any of the people of God. So he kept silent. This is good. This is wise. 
of Asaph to keep silent. Now, I'm not saying, hear me on this, if you're in the midst of suffering through something like this, I'm not saying that you cannot uh, seek counsel or that you can't ask for prayer or that you can't voice this concern to another believer like, hey, can you help me think through this? How is God good to his people when I see it? You can ask that. That's great. You should go talk to other believers in the midst of all of this stuff. But what Asaph is saying is, I did not declare that this is how it actually is. You see the difference that I'm making there? He he didn't go around telling people God is unjust and God doesn't care about you. He did not do that. He did not say God doesn't care about me. He says, as I felt, but I kept my mouth shut. And again, this is wise. He knew he was wrong because the Bible informed him that he was wrong. That God is good to his people. And he knew he should hold his tongue. And we would do well to do the same whenever we're suffering. To not go about and slander God or speak foolishly in the midst of our anger. Let me just give you a freebie on this. This is a good idea in general. Just to shut up. This is a good idea in general, most of the time. Just be quiet. I'm learning this right now. Just shut up. Measure your words. For real, just generally speaking, a fool talks without first asking, does this honor God? Is this true? Does this accord with the scriptures? More often would not, more often than not, we would be better off just to be quiet. But Asaph goes on to wrestle with his feelings. Verse 16, he says, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned therein. So he began to think through this, right? He says it was wearisome to me. It was confusing to him until. Verse 17 is the hinge of this psalm. He says it was wearisome to me. It was hard. It was confusing until he went to worship in the sanctuary. Until he went to think on what is right and what is true. I found it interesting in this psalm that as he focused on the world and its injustices, he despaired. That's what his eyes were on. Seeing all this injustice, he despaired, but he gained clarity when he spent time pondering on God's truth. That's when he gained clarity. See, it was a wearisome thing for me to consider until I went in your sanctuary. Meaning he began to be able to clearly see the truth. But going into the sanctuary here would entail that he goes in and he sees the sacrifices that the priests are offering, that the Levites are offering. He sees the sacrifices. And in seeing the sacrifice, what would he be reminded of? Sin and the forgiveness of sin to the people of God. He would be reminded of eternal realities, of heaven for the righteous and hell for the unrighteous. He would be reminded of justice, that God is a holy God, and that's why God demands sacrifice. Whenever someone sins, something must die. Either something in place of the sinner must die, or the sinner themselves must die. In the sanctuary, he's reminded of God's goodness and kindness to his people, whom he provides sacrifice for. He begins to meditate on what God has said, on what God has done, on what God has promised for the future, and then he is comforted. So again, if you're a note taker, here's another one for you. It's huge. Worship leads to clarity. Worship leads to clarity. So let me tell you this. If you're in the midst of it, when in distress, when in suffering, when going through trial, worship. Both public and private, worship. Here's one of my favorite phrases. Do not neglect the means of grace. Do not neglect the means of grace when you suffer. Do not neglect prayer to cry out to God like the psalmist does. 
Do not neglect prayer. Do not neglect the reading of the Word of God. Don't neglect the Scriptures. Right? Don't neglect corporate worship, which is what we're doing now whenever the people of God assemble together on the Lord's Day for worship. Don't neglect this. Don't neglect fellowship with your fellow believers. Right? To sit down and talk through this stuff and pray for one another and look at the Word of God together. Don't neglect that. Don't neglect thinking deeply on the Word and meditating upon the Scriptures. Right? Cling to the means that God has given to sustain His people. And I say that because I know that whenever we're in the midst of hurting and whenever we're in the midst of trial, that's the first thing we want to stop doing. We want to stop worshiping because we're upset. What's the point? I've done this for years. Now God's doing this. Or God's withholding this. What's, what's the point? This is the dumbest thing you can do. To neglect the means of grace whenever in that moment you need more grace than normal. Don't be a fool. Worship both public and privately. Publicly and privately, because worship leads to clarity. And a staff receives clarity on eternal matters, 18 through 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. All right, so these ungodly people, what he says, this is the clarity that I received. I saw the fate of the wicked. Whenever I went and worshipped, I was reminded of the eternal destinies of the righteous and the wicked. And I was reminded that these ungodly people that I see prospering so much will perish under the judgment of God. And by the way, just side note, whether you're wicked and prospering or wicked and lacking, all unbelievers, all those who do not repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will perish under the judgment of God. They do not know God. They are unrepentant. They reject God's way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And they will suffer the wrath of God for their sins. Asaph sees that this is the ultimate fate, regardless of what the wicked have now. This is their ultimate fate. I thought it was interesting. Verse 20 says that the wicked are like phantoms, which means the wicked are like dreams. Right? Their luxury is only a dream. It's not real. Their power, their comfort, it will not last. It's a dream. And really, this world, this life compared to eternity is a dream. It's a vapor. And the psalmist received an eternal perspective about this. And he saw that there is nothing to envy in the ungodly. No matter how much they prosper, there's nothing to envy in those who do not know God. Right? And again... If, if someone offered you everything that you ever wanted, ever, and then said, but if you accept, you will certainly go to hell. Who's taking that deal? Nobody. Why? Because compared to eternity, nothing this world can offer is of any real value. That's what Asaph sees. Nothing in this world, everything is just a trinket compared to eternity. And then remembering that eternal truth, Asaph repents. Verses 20 and 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was upset, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Right? So he thought foolishly in the past and now considers himself a stupid animal. That's a repentant heart. He's saying, how could I be so dumb as to get caught up in this life and forget that God always does justice in the end? I didn't think right of God and I was a fool. That's what he's saying. And just a freebie for you. Whenever we realize that our thinking was sinful, we need to repent just 
as much as we need to repent whenever our actions were sinful. Sin is thought, word, and deed. And still, even me, I tend to be a Pharisee. And I tend to think that it's just my actions that count as sin. And I don't consider even my thoughts against God, which then elevates the Lord Jesus who was sinless. He never even thought wrongly. Wild. But we need to repent whenever we think wrongly about God. And then he goes on, verse 23. Nevertheless, so in spite of what I thought, in spite of my sinfulness, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. So even though Asaph had thought sinfully, God had never left him. People who think the God of the Old Testament was mean, do not read the Old Testament. What a grace from God. This man thought blasphemous things about God as we are all prone to do when we suffer. I'm not making excuses. This is what we tend to gravitate towards. He says, nevertheless, you are continually with me. What grace from God towards His people. God is patient and kind to us. Truly, God is good to Israel. Even in the midst of our sin. He says, you're with me and you hold my right hand, which means God holds me up. God walks me hand in hand through this life and keeps me from falling and keeps me from stumbling and keeps me from unbelief. It was God who had kept him from falling in verse 2. He said, I had almost slipped. Why didn't he slip? Because God held his hand. The preserving and persevering grace of God toward the believer. What a blessing that this is to us. He has been sustained through the trial. Sustained through pain. He says, you guide me. Meaning God has given counsel to him. And we know that that comes from the word of God, from the scriptures to show us how to go. Whenever we don't know how to think or we don't know how we should be feeling about this, we don't know what to do. Look to the scriptures and we see the counsel of God given to us. What a blessing that that is for us in this life. He's given us his own holy wisdom. Certain and sure. So God is good to us and keeps us and walks with us and sustains us and protects us and guides us by His Word. There is so much, what He's highlighting is the blessing given to the believer in this life. He says, Look at what the wicked have, but you have a God who upholds you and sustains you and guides you and is merciful to you. And they don't. That's just in this life. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Afterward is a beautiful word. It means that this life is not all that there is. That there is a life to come. Afterward means that this life does not get the final say. That what we see here is not what always shall be. And God has promised His people something greater afterward. Glory. Glory. This is what He's promised us. Kabod. Right? Kabod's the Hebrew word there. The literal, imminent presence of God. Afterward, you will receive me into your presence, face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, afterward, I'll be received to glory. Heaven is our home. This is what awaits the believer. Heaven. To paraphrase the author of Hebrews, we look forward to a better country than the one we're currently in. 
And the promise that I find to be beautiful here is that those whom God guides here and sustains here, he says afterward, you will receive me. You will receive me. We will be received to glory. This is our certainty as Christians. It's not why I might go to heaven. God might receive me into his presence. No. Christ has accomplished this and secured our place in glory so we can say, God, you certainly will receive me to glory because of what Christ has done. This is a certainty for us in the life to come. Eternal joy is ours. And all of this thought on the blessing of God in this life and the blessing in the life to come leads the psalmist to an exclamation. 25, whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. He's exclaimed, and I know it's a rhetorical thing, but he exclaimed, Whom have I in heaven but you? What else do I want? I have everything. And God is my only desire. All I desire is to know Him because I have everything in Him. I have God leading me and upholding me and heaven as my home. Glory awaits me. Living with God awaits. Let them have the world. Let them have all the wealth of the world. Let them have all the relationships in the world. Let them have all the power in the world. Let the wicked have everything. What else could we want? That's his conclusion here. We know God, which means we have all both now and after this life because we have Him. Whom have I in heaven but you? What else do I want? He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I love this because he's real with himself. My body will get old. My body will wear out. My body will break down. And my heart may be crushed. I may have a broken spirit because of this world. But God is my strength. God is the strength of my heart. He will strengthen me in spirit so I persevere through it. And then after persevering through this, He Himself will be my inheritance. He's my portion forever. He's mine. I'm His. So come whatever may, all will be okay with me in the end. I know God, and He is enough for me. Oh, that God would grant us to have this planted in our hearts. And then Asaph comes to his conclusion. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is faithful, unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of all your works. So he's saying the unbeliever will perish. Those who lack faith in Christ, who do not repent of their sins and trust in Him, will perish. God will punish those who reject the salvation that He offers. The li- their lives may be good now, but not for long. It's a reminder of eternal judgment. But as for me, look at that turnaround. And it gets very personal. It goes from God is good to His people to but as for me. Asaph now recognizes God's goodness to him individually. God is my refuge. I'd rather be near to him than anything else. And it's funny to me, this psalm does not give us an answer to the question, why do the wicked have so much? It doesn't answer it. What I think is amazing is that God, in his most holy wisdom, chose to remind us 
of all that we have in him. Why do the wicked have so much? Look at what you have in me. It's amazing. And that is enough. That's enough. So I have one point of application for you guys. Remember. Like top five most repeated commands in the whole Bible. Remember. Do not forget. Remember, O Israel. Remember. All the time. As you go through life and see injustices, as you see the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, remember the fate of the wicked. They do not know God. Their life is a vapor. And judgment is coming. Either Christ's return or their death, judgment is coming. And there is nothing to envy in those who do not know our God. Nothing to envy in those who do not know our God. But what's amazing is that God stands here open armed saying, Come. In Isaiah, he says, Look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. He offers this salvation to all who will repent and believe. But nevertheless, for the unrepentant, there is nothing to envy in them. They do not know God. So when you're tempted to live like them and envy them and model your life after them, right? you're scrolling through Facebook, why, why, I want that. Remember their fate. Remember their fate. And likewise, remember that you know God. That you know God. The great love that he has given to you in his son. Truly, God is good to Israel. Salvation is yours. God guides you. He sustains you. He's given you his word. He upholds you in this life to keep you from falling. And afterward, he will receive you to glory. I'll leave you with this, and I pray that you'd press this on your hearts. To know God is enough. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word again, for the comforting truth that's to be found there for your people. I thank you for the warning that you give to the unbeliever. God, we know that you are withholding final judgment so that all of your people will come to know Christ. Lord God, we thank you for being merciful that not one of, your, not, not one of the ones whom your son died for should ever perish that the Lord Jesus will receive the, full, uh, the fullness of his bride. And we thank you for your patience. Lord, I pray that you would draw unbelievers to know you. And Lord, I pray that you would comfort your people as we suffer, as we see the unrighteous fare so well in this life that we would not become envious, but that we would be reminded of all that we have in you and that we would be content with our lot. We thank you and we praise you. Grant us contentment. Grant us to have a fuller experience of who you are. Guide us. Hold our hand. Sustain us. And prepare us to see you in glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.